Well, thank you, Alan, for that lovely prayer. And it's great just to be able just to listen to God's word here tonight. So, as we, we mentioned before, we're back into the Gospel of Mark and we're looking at a very well-known uh, story this evening, the parable of the sower. Now, to kind of just to kind of bring us into, again, thinking through how important story is, um, Canon, did a, who do like digital cameras and do printers and all sorts, they are a big technical um, company. They did a, a sur big survey last year and they asked people, who is your favorite storyteller? They've put together a list of 50 people and I thought it would be interesting just to see who the top five were, just to kind of get a bit of a flavor as to the kind of people that they're looking at. So here's the top five. Roald Dahl, Charles Dickens, William Shakespeare, J.K. Rowling, and Steven Spielberg. Now, we, now when we go through that list of 50 people, the storytellers vary. Most of that list, the top five, were, were novelists of some kind. Roald Dahl, known for his children's books. Charles Dickens, known for many of his works. William Shakespeare, who we've probably all read at least in school at some point. J.K. Rowling, who did the popular Harry Potter series, um, and also Steven Spielberg, who many of us who are big fans of, of movies will probably know the name of Steven Spielberg. And it kind of goes to show that we, again, we all love a good story, don't we? Uh, I don't know about, about you, but you know, as I've grown up, my tastes in stories have changed. Now, as a kid growing up, my theatre author was a man named Dick King-Smith, who wrote stories such as, as Babe the Sheep Pig. That was my favourite story as a child growing up. But as I got older, I got more into C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis is my, my favourite author, and I kind of fell in love with C.S. Lewis through the, the Narnia books. And I read them as a kid growing up, but really what did it for me was the early 2000s when they brought out the new movies of Narnia that was done by a group called War of the Media, where they did um, brought Star with the Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe, which is one of my favorite stories of all time. So why am I, why am I kind of even saying this to us? Well, it's to get us to think about story and why it's so important. And one of the things that we often find in a story is we often get sucked into it, don't we? If, we, if there's a story that's really good, that really grips us, we can almost feel as if we're part of that story. And a, a man named John Berger, who I personally don't know, but I found this quote was really kind of hit the nail on the head. He says that when we read a story, we inhabit it. Say that again. When we read a story, we inhabit it. So we become part of this story. In terms of the, of the Christian faith, this is very much the case for us. We become part of God's story. We become part of the story of Jesus Christ. And one of the reasons that we love some of these stories that we read about is they often convey a bigger message. You know, we mentioned earlier on about fables, about Aesop's work. And if we look at some of those kind of stories, they have a bigger moral meaning than what, is, what we see on the surface there. And that's one of the reasons why we quite often get sucked into these amazing stories, because it makes us think, wow, I, I would like to be like that person. I would like to be like that group of people. So we heard, we heard the story a little bit earlier on 
from the about the parable of the sower. So we're going to have a look at answering this question first and foremost: What are parables, and why did Jesus use them? So let's take a, a look at this. The first half of this question first: What is a parable? And let's answer that. So hopefully, I'm, hopefully he's not going to throw us off too much. But I'm going to teach you all a little bit of Greek today, a little tiny bit. And that is that this one word, which is parable, in Greek is parabole. And it has many, many different meanings. Uh, a lot of Greek words and Hebrew words have upwards of five to six different possible translations. So to try and figure out what a parable is, we're going to have to have a look at it in context. So if I was to say to you, can you name me three parables off the top of your head? That's not the, the parable of the sower. What would you come up with? Good Samaritan? Lost coin? Lost sheep. Great. Lost son. So the, the three I had mentioned there in mind was the lost sheep, the lost son, and the good Samaritan. That's the three I came up with straight off the top of my head. Now if we look at these stories, what do they have in common? They're all metaphors. Well, we assume they're metaphors. They could have been actual events that Jesus had witnessed or somebody Jesus knew had witnessed. But he's using them as metaphors. So we, to understand what a parable is, we've got to look at it in that context, as in the metaphor. So, this, so what we get, in terms of it being a metaphor, is this. It is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. We talked earlier again about, about fables, about what they, about some of these fables. So an example would be, say, the lion and the mouse, which tries to teach us that every so often we need a little help. You know, we can't do everything on our own and we need to work together. But here's the difference between a, a parable and a fable. A fable focuses on us. A parable focuses on God. And that's, a, that's a real big difference. So let's have a look at why Jesus spoke in parables. And I'm going to read to you basically what Jesus unpacks in the power of the sower, but from Matthew's gospel. So he goes into a little bit more detail. So if you've got a Bible and you want to turn to it, this is Matthew chapter 10, and I'll be reading verses 10 through 13. And this is what it says. And the disciples came to him and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear nor do they understand. So, according to what Jesus says here, parables are designed for the purpose of explaining to believers something that God wants them to understand and to not give away mysteries about the kingdom of God to non-believers. Basically, it's to tell Christians the truths of God and know, and know these truths are only fully available if we're saved. Now, that's one of those things where sometimes we look at that and that's maybe a little bit controversial in some ways but this is what the, the Bible says 
Now, when we become Christians, we, we start to see God as he is. We start to be, become more like him. We start to know and understand his ways fully. But if, if we think about it, before we were Christians, chances are we didn't really understand certainly everything in the Bible. Far from it. Um, I have a... We, my dad's not a Christian. My younger brother is not a Christian. And the amount of times we debate about the Bible and they simply get it wrong it is amazing at times. And I say that not to be arrogant. I'll put that little caveat on there. But just to go, they will come up and they'll say, well, surely th- this verse here means this. Well, actually, it means something completely different. And the reason for that is because it's God who leads us to that understanding of what he, what he is saying through his word. So other things get in the way. And therefore, we need God to show us the way. So, he, he's what, so he, we're going to ask this question now about this particular parable. We've seen why Jesus speaks in parables, but we're going to ask, what does this particular parable mean? So we're going to have a look at the parable of the soul. I'm going to ask the question, what does this parable show us about humanity? So before we do it, let's, let's go back into Mark chapter 4, and we'll read verses 3 to 8 again. And this is what these verses say. Listen, behold the sower went out to sow, and it happened. As he, so, as he sowed, as some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground, where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground, and yielded the crop that sprang up, increased and produced, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. So Jesus sets the scene by telling us about four types of soil and tells us basically kind of what happens to these soil. So and this, this actually makes guest disciples a bit confused, which is quite interesting when you think about it because considering that Jesus explains that the reason for teaching in parables is so that believers understand and yet the disciples go to Jesus and go, uh, God, what was that all about? I don't quite understand what you're saying here. So a little bit of, uh, I guess you could say, comical irony, in a sense. But Jesus explains the whole point of these parables later on, of this particular parable. So this is Mark 4. We're back in, in Mark 4, and this is verses 14 to 20. And it says this. The sower sows the word, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among the thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires of other things, entering in, choke the word, 
and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixtyfold, and some a hundred. So Jesus kind of sums up who these, these, these different soils represent and what it is all about. So how do we kind of understand this in kind of a, a modern context? Because sometimes we look at that, we try and go, well, what's the good soil? What is this um, all about with, you know, like the weeds choking up these? So let's have a look and see whether we can summarize this into some understandable bits. So here's, here's how going through it, it came, came into, into my head. And this, so the first one is the empty hearer. So these are the kind of, kind of people who hear the gospel, maybe through, a, through an alpha course, maybe they come to church on a Sunday. They've basically, they maybe they've even just heard you tell them the gospel over a cup of coffee. However, the, these are the people who, when they've heard it, do absolutely nothing with it. It's in one ear and it's out the other. Now this could be this could be for many reasons. There could be any number of things that prevent them from from listening and making a response. An example of this would be a, f- a friend of mine who has a cousin whose biggest barrier to the Christian faith is science. He constantly goes on and goes, well, you know, Christianity is unscientific. Which, to be honest, it's not. But that's where, where his worldview is at. So that's his barrier. So when we come to these, these people who we call, I'm calling the empty hearers, there's a wall there that has to be knocked down. And the only person who can knock that wall down is Jesus Christ. He is the one who, who speaks to hearts. He's the one who speaks to our minds. And he's the one who brings us to him and calls us to himself. So that seems to be the kind of person, at least in my mind, who... Jesus referring to is the first bit. Now the second one, and this is going to get some, maybe get some funny looks and stuff like that, but this is what that group I would call the youth camp Christian. Now let me qualify this by saying I do not believe for a second this is an only young people thing at all, but this comes from my experience over the years of going to many youth camps, many youth events, and seeing this happen time and time again. So these are the kind of people who go to, to events, they'll go to, say, like an evangelistic rally, or they'll go to, like, a youth camp, as I mentioned, and when the speaker for the evening is done and makes his appeal, they'll stick their hand up, and they'll go, yes, I want in. But when they go home, the next day, the week after, nothing happens. Nothing takes up root in their heart, and part of that could be because of of different reasons, but one of the ones I've seen over the years happen all the time is that, again, using the youth camp analogy, half of the young people that I saw do that at a youth camp didn't have a church. They had nowhere where they could be discipled. They were nowhere where they could be part of a Christian community. So, that, so this is a big part of this whole thing. When we make a decision for Christ, we should be in amongst other believers because discipleship and evangelism go hand in hand. The next group we're going to look at is one who says, the ones who look the part. Now these can be, can be quite tricky at times. And it's also a t- the type of soil that, can, that is the most deceptive. So it looks good 
However, underneath there's, there's, there's a bit of thornage, there's some issue there. And what happens quite often with this group is that they'll put other things before God. Maybe it'll be their job, maybe it'll be their family. You know, it could be, and most of the time, let's be honest, when we see people doing this, they're usually stuff that aren't you know, evil or bad in themselves. They've just put them in place of God. And that's where the issue comes in, putting something else above God in our lives. Quite often, the, quite often this kind of groups, they all say the right words, they speak in, in all the right, right vernacular for a church goer, but ultimately there's not really any growth in their, in their heart. And quite often they'll eventually dis- disappear. Often, in my experience, they, dis- they disappear and nobody hears a single word from them about why. So that all sounds a little bit negative, doesn't it? And this is the, the reality of the passage. Jesus starts out by going, these are the three areas we want you to avoid. These are the three types of soil I do not want you to be. But he goes on to the fourth soil, which is what I would call the true believers. And these are the soil of people who, who truly have given their heart to Christ, have given their heart to God. These are the ones who, who take up that, that invitation to become Christians and to walk with Jesus, to live with him, and just to let him grow in their hearts. And these are the ones who, who are committed to, to God fully. doesn't mean that we, they get it right all the time. As a, somebody who's been a Christian for quite a while, I can say, yeah, I get it wrong pretty much every single day, usually multiple times a day, and probably far more than I'd willingly want to admit. But the difference is, is that God has taken up, up root in, in, in their heart, and this is the big thing. So we're going to have to try and ask, ask the question here of how do we know if we are this good soil? You know, I think it's an important question to ask. It's an important question, thing for us to reflect upon. Are we truly that good soil? And here's where it gets quite simple in my, my mind. And that is, it's based on Romans 10, verse 9 which says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the thing that makes somebody a Christian. It is not how many, not how many times you go to church, it's not how many times you, you how many things you serve in. Although all of those things are great and fantastic. What makes a Christian a Christian is have they confessed that Jesus is Lord, have they declared that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and have they accepted in their heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's what makes a Christian a Christian. So that's the little test that we we do to kind of go, are we that good soil? Because if we've done those two things, then we are that soil. If we can honestly say yes to both of those questions, then that is a very good indication of where of that us being that soil. So the question then becomes how do we become this good soil? How do we become that good soil? Well, the crux of the account that Jesus is getting at here is it's all about a relationship with God, it's all about that relationship with Jesus Christ. So here's John 1, verse 12, and it should be coming up on the screen. It says this, But to all who believed and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. 
Imagine that. Now, I did a bit more digging into this. I'm not going to tell you the word, but let me just say that the original, in the original language, the word that we translate there as believed or received means to take hold of. And what you get is you get this picture of somebody holding on to something as if their life depends on it. As if they, if they let go, they're done for. They're a goner. Now that's a, that's a very challenging picture when you think about that Jesus asks us to hold on to him in that kind of manner. That he wants us to be in this position where it's like, Yo, Jesus, it's all or nothing with you. I don't want to let you go. I can't let you go. So, as I approached this, I met with a friend for, for coffee and talked to him about basically the sermon, and he asked the question of, well, do, do you think this makes God a little bit arrogant? Do we think this makes God kind of go, well, you know, I'm, I'm the bee's knees? To be honest, I certainly do not think that's the case. I don't think it makes God arrogant in any way. It's simply understanding something that's already true. So here, there's a couple of things just to think about as we finish off. Here's Romans 5, verse 8. And it says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Romans 6, 23. We could probably all say this together if we wanted to. But it says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the reason why God asked us to kind of trust him in this manner and hold on to him in this manner isn't arrogant is because of the, of the simple fact that before, we, before Christ forgave us as Christians, we were criminals. We had broken God's law and therefore are deserving of, of the punishment according to God's law. That's where... It's not in my notes, so, but Romans 3.23 comes to mind. For the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Jesus came to this earth almost 2,000 years ago. Willingly gave himself up so that we could come to him and be into the, enter into this relationship with him. And this is what all of this hinges on. Everything that we read in Mark's gospel is leading up to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Which, hinge, which is what our whole Christian faith hinges on. It's about this relationship with Jesus Christ. So I say we could be, we were rightfully were able to be punished according to law, but thankfully that doesn't stop there. Because the, as we've read in Romans there, while we were still sinners, Christ came and died for us, allowing us to be saved from this wrath of God that is truly justified. And if we accept him as Lord and Savior, as our King, this gift that God has, has given to us, this gift of eternal life, is there for each and every one of us. Ask the question earlier on, how do we become the good seed? Well, it's actually simple. We accept Jesus Christ. And this is the, the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? You know, it's like, how do we get into this relationship with God? How do we fix this, this broken relationship that came about from way back in, in the Garden of Eden? All comes through accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord. And this is why the, this power of the soul is so important, I, I think, because it shows us quite often where we were before we became Christians. 
you know, for more soils, if we we're going to be honest with ourselves, we would have been one of the other three seeds, soils. We would have been one of, in one of those other positions before we give our life to Christ. So I want us to ask ourselves this question before we finish off for the evening. Where are we at with God? If we look at our own hearts, can we say that we're the good soul? Or would we have to say that we're one of the evil ones? For those of us who are who have truly given our lives to Christ, which looking around the room is, is all of us, I think, certainly, or most of us at the least, we've got to, got to think through, like, are we planted in a church community, for example? I mentioned before that was the thing that I've spotted in uh, those young people I've seen go to youth camps who got all excited when we had a good message or got all excited with the worship that was going on at these events, put their hand up, and then went back to... The towns and villages, and had nowhere they could get rooted into. So, are we? Are you? You part of that church community? Are we people who's carrying out His service? This serving God is one of the biggest ways that we can grow in our relationship with Him. Now, that can look different for each and every one of us. And here's one of the things that one of the lessons I learned many years ago, and that is this: one of the biggest, one of the best ways that we can serve in church is praying for the church, praying for the people in it. So your servant doesn't always look like, look like this, doesn't always look like the band, no, because something like prayer is part of the bedrock of the church. The church grows on prayer. So, and that is something that we can all do, regardless of you know, where we're at physically or even age-wise, we can all pray and we can all ask God to do what he wants to do in this church. So, where we're at, where are we at? Firstly, I'd like to say I, I would like to say I'm the fourth one, but ultimately, ultimately, my relationship with God is is secure, I think, and that is because I love God and I've accepted Him, and that is my prayer for each and every one of us in this room, and that that will, will always be the case. So let, let's pray before we, we, we sing our final song and let's just ask God just to speak to us and lead us and continue to guide us. Dear Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you so much for your amazing word. God, I just want to pray that for each of us in here that we can be, be sure of our relationship with you and we can be sure of the foundation of that relationship, which is Jesus Christ. God, if we are, are struggling in any way with our relationship with you, just pray, God, that you, you speak to us and that you, you show us the direction you want us to go. God, this is such an important thing to, to think about our relationship with you and where we stand. And God, I just ask for, for you to speak to each of us and to minister to us in whatever way you choose to. God, as we, we finish off our time together tonight before our fellowship time, just thank you, God, for who you are and what you've done for each and every one of us. Thank you, God, that you were willing to send your son, Jesus, to the cross 
to die in our place and to redeem us from the awful things that we've done. God, we just thank you for your love and your grace and we just pray that you again be with each and every one of us as we finish off. Amen.